This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. The Prime Minister's explosive announcement linking agents of the Indian government to the June murder of Hardeep Singh Nijjar in Surrey has inflamed the simmering tension between two allies. Rumina Dea joins us from outside the Indian consulate in Vancouver. And Rumina, there is a visible police presence there now. The ripple effect being felt here in Vancouver, Sophie. There are several police officers parked outside the Indian consulate. The Vancouver police say this is just a safety precaution. There has been no threat. The decision was made after speaking with police agencies locally and nationally. The VPD says it is monitoring the situation in Canada and abroad. Canada's Prime Minister, the target of angry protests erupting in northern India. The leader of the protest essentially accusing Justin Trudeau of buying sick votes in Canada. That's why he's pointing the finger at India for the assassination of prominent BC Sikh leader Hardeep Singh Nijjar on Canadian soil. India calling the unprecedented accusations absurd, rejecting any involvement. Trudeau not backing down. We are not uh, looking to um, provoke or escalate. We are simply laying out the facts as uh, we understand them. Tensions escalating after Ottawa expelled India's top intelligence agent. India retaliating. Canada's number one diplomat in India given five days to leave. In June, 45-year-old Niger was shot to death in his truck outside a Surrey temple. No one has been arrested. The Indian government claims Niger is a terrorist, putting a bounty on his head last year. Niger's supporters say he was advocating for an independent Sikh state. At Niger's Surrey Gurdwara, people were seen removing controversial posters Tuesday, calling for the assassination of three Indian politicians. I think we need to see more facts. Um, the Prime Minister hasn't provided any facts. Uh, he, uh, he provided a statement, um, and I will just emphasize that he, he didn't tell me any more in private than he told Canadians in public. There could be all sorts of uh, convoluted uh, trails here leading back to India. So there's no advantage really in releasing the intelligence. Canada is not going to put Canada in this position internationally, particularly with India, if it's based on something kind of flaky. I'd say it's solid intelligence, and it's going to have to suffice for Canadians right now. Vancouver police say if a safety risk evolves, the public will be notified. The Sikh community is telling us that protests are planned at Indian consulates across Canada on Monday. Sophie. Ramina Day reporting outside the Indian consulate. Ramina, thank you. So you might be wondering, how did a plumber from Surrey end up as an enemy of India and now the center of a growing diplomatic dispute? Aaron MacArthur reports on who Hardeep Singh Nijjar was and how his controversial beliefs 
made him a hero to many in his community, but a terrorist to the Indian government. Hardeep Singh Nijar was gunned down in his pickup truck. The idea that it was a targeted political attack was already in the air. One of the key figures in the group, Six for Justice, he was the target of a CSIS warning. The Surrey plumber was active in the movement fighting for a separate state in India called Khalistan. While Canada recognizes the group as a legitimate political entity, the Indian government considers it an enemy of the state. They view what in Canada we view as, as people expressing you know, criticism of a, of a country and some homeland issues. They see it as an actual threat to the integrity of their state. The roots of Sikh independence go back decades. A minority in India, the group was ignored in the partition that carved up the former British colony. India for the Hindu majority, Pakistan for Muslims, caught in between. Some Sikhs have pushed for an independent state. To quell protests and riots in Punjab in 1984, Indian forces attacked the Golden Temple in Amritsar. The outrage causing the nationalist movement to grow. We are now at war with India. In 1985, an Air India jetliner from Canada was bombed over the Atlantic Ocean, resulting in 329 deaths, the worst terrorist attack in Canadian history. Only Indrajit Singh Rayat was convicted, but a Sikh militant group with ties to British Columbia was implicated. Forty years later, the idea of an independent Khalistan has continued to hold sway in B.C., some say with the tacit approval of Canadian politicians. Because the politicians in this country hobnob with Khalistanis, not the violent ones, but at least the non-violent ones, and aren't willing to call them out. An increasingly strong Nehendra Modi, India's prime minister, views the Sikh separatists as a direct threat to his government. India also claims that in Canada, the Canadian authorities have not done enough to um, curtail and to prosecute those who are a part of what they consider to be Khalistani uh, terrorist. What may have happened with Mr. Nijar from India is very much what would happen in India. This is how they deal with their minorities and religious groups. Canada has linked the Indian state to Nijar's murder. While it has further frosted relationships between the two countries, experts believe it will have little effect in India. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Well, members of Parliament have unanimously passed a bill aimed at keeping repeat violent offenders off the streets. As Kylie Stanton reports, public safety advocates say it's a step forward, but more needs to be done to keep communities safe. The pressure has been mounting for months now. Enough is enough! Communities across the country and the premiers that represent them calling on the federal government to reform Canada's bail laws. Third reading of this bill. And on Monday, Bill C-48 passed unanimously in the House of Commons. Our focus has been on repeat violent offenders. The goal is that the justice system will have better tools to hold them to increase public safety and and um, make sure that British Columbians can feel safer. The proposed legislation includes a reverse onus, meaning it will be up to the accused seeking bail to prove why they should be released. But the standard will only be applied to some repeat violent offenders. So if somebody has used a weapon repeatedly, if there's a risk to public safety, if that person has shown intimate partner violence. I mean, it's a start. There are concerns the changes only address certain types of crime 
leaving the repeat offenders who are not necessarily violent in the ongoing cycle of catch and release. Well, all you have to do is look at the number of people that are out on the streets committing crime after crime after crime, thefts, burglaries, robberies. There are an awful lot of people that are real and present danger to public safety that are just at large right now. If I didn't love what I do for work, then I would close up. Jeff Ross, the gold silver guy, has seen it all over and over again. His business, the target of 20 break-ins and counting. I don't wish this upon anybody. None of this will really change until those who can make laws are affected by it themselves. But others say it comes down to addressing what's really fueling the trend. Whether it's homelessness, whether it's a mental health or behavioral health issue or addictions, this government continues to fail at addressing the root causes of crime. And until they do, we're going to continue on the same path that we're on right now. The bill will need to be passed in the Senate before receiving royal assent. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Fifteen people have been charged with mischief in connection to a riot at Vancouver's Breakout Festival almost exactly a year ago. The concert goers were caught on camera causing thousands of dollars in damage in and around the PE Amphitheater. Troy Charles has more on how police were able to identify those responsible. The baby arrived to Breakout Festival and was unfortunately too sick to perform. With that announcement, a city synonymous with rioting was home to another. September 18th, 2022, the breakout festival at the Peony Amphitheater turned to chaos. After rapper Lil Baby did not perform his headlining set, festival organizers saying he was ill. Video shared on social media showed hundreds of festival goers trashing displays, throwing garbage cans and knocking over tents. The melee also sparked street fights in surrounding residential neighborhoods. People were stealing credit card machines, people were stealing merch. People were selling drinks, everything. It was free game for them. $300,000 in damage later, and Vancouver police have announced that 15 people have been charged with mischief in connection to the riot. VPD saying an ample amount of online videos and over 300 tips from the public aided the months-long investigation. The community deserves a big shout-out because without their assistance on this, we wouldn't have been able to identify anybody. All 15 suspects are men who were between 15 and 22 at the time of the incident. Only three are from Vancouver, with the rest from across B.C. Peony staff said it was around 1,000 of the 5,200 guests in attendance that turned their frustration into violence. This was going to be a great event for us, and to have it marred by the actions of a small group of people was incredibly uh, disappointing. Breakout Festival's promoter Crescendo One had thrown many versions of the fest in Vancouver since 2017. They did not respond to our requests for comment today. And in the last year, they've gone radio silent across all social media platforms with no news of any future events. Troy Charles, Global News. Police are on alert as dueling protests are planned countrywide tomorrow, where anti-Soji marches will be met by counter-protesters, while one side is advocating for the end of sexual orientation and gender identity curriculum in schools. The other has been organized in support of the trans community. Keith Baldry joins us with more. Uh, Keith, it is a hot-button issue, and it's one that had BC United Party leader Kevin Falcon clarifying some of his comments today. 
It is a hot-button issue. It's particularly sensitive for a party like the BC United Party, which is trying to court the conservative vote, including the social conservative vote. And, of course, this march has been branded by such uh, opponents as the BC Teachers Federation in a letter to David Eby and to Kevin Falcon, other political parties, saying that this march, this, this uh, use of the words parent uh, uh, information, parental access to this information, is simply, in their words, a dog whistle for homophobia. So today, Kevin Falcon asked by reporters about this talked about what the sexual education rules were back when he was in government before there was Soji and also expressed some support for some of the parents who find themselves marching in protest for what they're not getting in terms of information in schools. We're going to hear from him and then from BC United MLA Eleanor Sterkel who came in front of the cameras later in the day to clarify some of the confusion that Mr. Falcon's remarks may have created. Here's the two of them. I think when it comes to a point where parents are feeling a need to protest in the streets, uh, that's telling you something. It's telling you that they feel excluded uh, and ignored in the, what's going on in their schools. And I think it's important that, that we don't just dismiss that outright, that we recognize that there are legitimate concerns that are driving uh, some of these concerns among parents. Our stance is, is that we continue to support inclusion, but we also need to make sure that it is clear for parents what their kids are being taught, which is why Kevin today gave the example of previously with sexual education, which is different from our SOGI uh, materials that are being used in schools. So I have a caucus member sort of clarifies what the leader says, not the best situation. Nevertheless, Kevin Falcon phoned me after his remarks to clarify uh, in no uncertain terms, BC United, he says, firmly supports the social education component in our curriculum. They're not going to change any of that if they come into power come the next election. But they are concerned with the lack of what they consider to be a lack of information uh, towards parents when it comes to the very sensitive issue of trans issues in BC schools. This has not been a great few days for Kevin Falcon. All right, thanks for that, Keith. Metro Vancouver mayors are warning time is running out to get the funding needed to expand public transit. Funding, they say, is critical to support the region's housing goals and ease overcrowding on buses as ridership surges. Richard Zisman reports. It's a system bursting at the seams. No matter where you rest your head at night in this region, you need to see expansion. Mayors from across Metro Vancouver joining together Tuesday at the annual Union of BC Municipalities Convention, urging the province and federal government to commit to transit funding, warning the opportunity to support public transit has nearly left the station. We're experiencing serious overcrowding in many parts of the region, and we're at risk of seeing even more bus routes seriously over capacity very soon. The ask is for more than $20 billion over more than a decade to deal with existing services and build new infrastructure. The pandemic crippling ridership numbers system-wide, but there's been a bounce back. More than 86 million rides in the summer of 2022, summer of 2023 soaring to more than 100 million, up 16%. The West Coast Express seeing the biggest increase from 240,000 riders in summer of 2022 to 339,000 this year, up 41%. While other transit agencies in North America are struggling to recover their riders, there are areas in Metro Vancouver that have not only recovered, but surpassed pre-pandemic volume. Suburbs continue to feel the pressure on the bus system as well. Route 323 up 70%. 
Route 310 up 140% and Route 531 up 60%. Mayor's warning, if transit isn't improved, the region can't hit the province's targets to build housing. It is really hampering our ability to build in our city. It is starting to impact our ability to produce housing. The province says it's willing to get on board. But in terms of how much money, Minister Rolf Fleming wouldn't put a number on the table. What we're willing to consider is the strong partnership that we've forged. I mean, we're obviously proud in British Columbia to have had the strongest level of support uh, by a long way of, of any province for uh, transit systems during the COVID-19 pandemic. The mayor is also pushing Ottawa to step up and will be heading to the national capital next week to deliver that message. Richard Zussman, Global News, Vancouver. Seniors facing the fear of retirement. That's scary. Where's, what's going to happen to all of us? The financial struggle facing so many aging Canadians and how one community is stepping up to help a longtime volunteer. That's next on the News Hour. His eyes were open, but he was lying still like he was sleeping. A terrifying close call for Charlie and his family after an accidental fentanyl overdose. How it happened and why it's a warning to all owners later. Plus, I am amazed at how many old buildings are still here that haven't been torn down and replaced. Photographer John Bentley recording the evolution of the city one frame at a time. That's later on the news hour. Right now, though, Canada's inflation rate jumped up to 4% in August, mainly because of rising gas prices. This is the second consecutive month the consumer price index has accelerated in the country after falling to 2.8% in June. In addition to rising energy prices, Canadians paid more for rent and mortgage interest last month. Food prices saw a smaller increase compared to the month before, while travel and transportation costs dropped following peak summer demand. At its last meeting, the Bank of Canada kept its key interest target on hold at 5%, but noted it would raise rates again if needed. Now, the plight of a longtime Vancouver community activist is shining some new light on the crippling financial strains facing BC retirees. As Kamal Karmali reports, she's having a hard time making ends meet after devoting her life to helping others. Easter Armas has been an advocate for Vancouver's queer community for decades. I chose to take jobs that meant that I could do a greater good or make a difference or change or learn something from. And that really didn't include, you know, cash, a lot of cash. Now 65 and looking to retire, but after a lifetime of serving others, there's little left for herself actually made me sick to my stomach was imagining her having to leave her home that she's been in for 20 years. So now the community has stepped in. A GoFundMe page racking up thousands of dollars. People she once helped years ago now finding a way to return the favor. What's it been like for you to see the community come together and help? There's no words. There is no words. Retiring in BC has become increasingly challenging. We are seeing seniors who are struggling in retirement financially. BC's seniors advocate found half of seniors are worried about staying in their homes as they age. More than half don't have enough to pay for normal living expenses and 84% say they run out of money to buy food. Uh, currently, 
uh, retirement incomes are about uh, 60% less than working age incomes. The rising costs of housing and food playing a major role, but there are solutions. Eyeglasses, hearing aids, mobility, um, uh, you know, things that you can use to get around. None, none of that is uh, subsidized in any way. We've been taking a lot of the advice from people on the front line about where as a province we can fill in the gap, especially for seniors. In this case, we'll have that new strategy out in the new year. Easter Armas feeling grateful she has some support. But I was so fixated in um, just trying to do a good job for others that, you know, we forget that about ourselves. Knowing not everyone is as privileged as her in having good friends. Kamal Karamali, Global News. Coming up, we've got a one-on-one -on -one with the West Kelowna Fire Chief. At one point, couldn't see how we didn't lose lives. Jason Broland reflects on the horror he faced leading the city through this summer's wildfires. Also tonight, a Langley barn reduced to ashes and the heroic effort to save animals from the fire. The steady volume across the Arthur Lang Bridge, whether you're heading on to Sea Island or into Marpole of Vancouver. Now, of course, Marpole, their usual volume delays for a Friday, busy right up to 49th on both Granville and Oak. And Southwest Marine Drive from Oak to Victoria has infrastructure upgrades causing some delays as you make your Friday commute there as well. Today's Lotto Max jackpot is estimated $15 million. Lotto Max, dreamed of Max. In the Global One Traffic Center, I'm Brad Russell. It's been just over a month since wildfires ripped through the Okanagan, and tonight the West Kelowna Fire Chief is reminding people to be prepared for the next one. Yeah, make a grab-and-go kit and or do some fire-smart work around your house. Chief Brolin says we have to be ready. Jason Pierre has spent some time with Fire Chief Jason Brolin to talk about that historic fire season and strategies to plan for future seasons. Jason? Sophie, Chris, yes, Chief Brolin says his crews were prepared, plans were in place ahead of that big event, but then the fire and those flying embers jumped the lake, and Brolin says that came as a massive shock, and it was a game changer. To start our sit-down interview, I asked him to take us back to that first torturous night at Ground Zero. You called it the toughest night of your career. What is seared in your mind from that day? What moment stands out? Yeah, I will never ever forget, uh, you know, being in one of the most affected neighborhoods. Four in the morning, fire all around us. This is the first neighborhood that Chief Brolin raced to that first night. Fire crews assembled in this cul-de-sac of Rose Valley as raging flames soared above them all around. It's about 2 a.m. and these firefighters are engaged in uh, digging in deep, uh, trying to save these homes under some incredible conditions. This was where we dug in, it was right here in your neighborhood. What did you ever? Through the security camera you could see that the staging area was yeah. like right here. Yeah. Well, I could see the fire. If we were having this kind of battle here, it meant that that same kind of battle was happening in all of the neighborhoods along the top uh, yeah. of the city here. It was a great feeling to see them being successful in this one tiny spot, but also just like the overwhelmingness of what that all meant. You described it as hell, Armageddon, and you're not exaggerating. No, um, you know, somebody told me that night that it was like fighting a hundred years worth of fire all at once. And it really was. At one point, couldn't see how we didn't lose lives. There's no playbook 
for this. But similar to Dr. Henry, you kind of delivered the information, but also provided a sense of comfort. Was that your goal, or did that just happen organically? I think, like, I, we, involved in this event, asked a lot of people. Like, we asked them to leave their homes, often with very short notice. We did it right before school was going back. Um, and, you know, we kept people out for a long time. And I think any time we do that to people, we owe it to them to try and deliver as much information as we can. My staff, they slept under their desks in our office um, because they were evacuated too. Fires of this scale used to be like the thing of legend, right? Yeah. And now I've experienced two of them in my career and there's no reason why it's scary to think that we won't ex have a third. We need more fire breaks. We need to be able to draw more resources together. Um, we need to be able to you know, look at how do we attack these fires at night, for example, from the air. I didn't personally have anything to do with this other than I was here. It was the firefighters that dug in. I have four other chief officers who, they really ran this. I got to be the leader of the band, but I didn't really even know all the songs. On your briefings, and I say briefings, because you just casually mentioned that you needed underwear, and the response was quite large. <laughs> Did you expect that? Not really and you know like obviously we did some preparation going into those briefings but talking about underwear was not part of the plan as much as it, this was no laughing matter people got a little chuckle and oh, yeah. you know some people definitely made sure I was taken care of so. <laughs> Can you reveal how much underwear was sent to you? Uh, you know what like it'll see me through the end of the year. <laughs> Good to have a laugh after such yeah. a Terrible. <laughs> and a healthy supply of underwear. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, less laundry. Yeah. So, uh, Chris, as you may expect, a very modest Chief Brolin there. He's not comfortable with all the attention. Bit of a rock star now in West Kelowna, getting stopped at the grocery store and on the streets on a regular basis. His daughter is his social media manager and passes on all those messages of thanks. Brolin says he cannot wait to get back to normal, but his crews do appreciate the gratitude shown by the community. We owe them a lot. Thanks, Jason. An online fundraiser has been set up for a woman who was injured in a barn fire in Langley Monday evening. About 35 firefighters responded to the fire near the Canada-U.S. border last night. The barn was destroyed in the blaze. Sandy Herring suffered serious burns while trying to rescue horses from the building. Her daughter tells Global News most of the horses made it out, but sadly two did not survive. A GoFundMe page has now been set up to support the family. My mom lived in there, and so she lost everything. Um, all the boarders lost all their tack, everything to do with their horses. Two people lost their horses, and they're devastated. Um, it was utterly horrifying. She's in the hospital. She's at Royal Columbian right now. They're moving her to VGH. Um, she can't move her hands. She's severely burnt. Um, her back is very burnt, but she is being taken care of very well. Stacy Herring says her family is in need of blankets, wood shavings, pitchforks, and other supplies to help them run the farm after losing everything to that fire. Well, just ahead, a warning for dog owner, an accidental overdose. My 10-year-old son came and said, uh, Charlie's whimpering really weird. The very close call for a beloved family pet and what saved him next. And a developer who says he had to abandon an affordable housing project on the downtown east side when bureaucracy got in the way.
we're seeing volume lighten up for our Tuesday commute across the Patella Bridge. We're looking over to the Surrey side from New Westminster in this shot, and just beyond this, this bridge, there is a semi-trail that, trailer that is buckled at Tannery Road, eastbound at the Highway 17 overpass, down to one lane eastbound, and the westbound lanes are completely blocked as they deal with this this semi. Contact Kermac for expert windshield repair and replacement services while supporting Kermac Cares for Kids. Kermac is celebrating 50 years of collision and autoglass services, and that's no accident. In the Global One Traffic Center, I'm Brad Russell. A Vancouver developer has another red tape horror story saying bureaucracy killed his social housing project that would have been built with no government money. Kristen Robinson shows us how the city's 60-40 zoning rules were a factor and how the city doesn't seem willing to discuss it. Perdeep Moore struggles to understand why the East Hastings property he purchased in 2014 for a social housing project sits vacant. It's a shame. I find it really upsetting. An application approved in 2019 for a seven-story mixed-use building with 14 units of social housing and eight units of market rental, in compliance with 60% social housing and 40% secured market rental requirements for new projects built beyond existing zoning in the downtown east side Oppenheimer district. This is an empty property that could be housing 22 people and is still sitting empty after nearly 10 years now. P.D. Moore Homes says it offered to build 100% social housing with no government funding and had a non-profit partner willing to rent and operate the site once built. The city refused and said that what they want is they want the non-profit to be on title before they issue a building permit it's essentially just putting the cart before the horse. The city did not make anyone available for an interview, but said it's important to note P.D. Moore was not the applicant, and therefore the city did not communicate directly with P.D. Moore about this project. I've had meetings with city council people, all different levels of people at the city hall, in person, via email. In one 2021 exchange, a city staffer who was resigning wrote, it is even more unfortunate that this project has been such a struggle because it would have provided much needed housing in the downtown east side. We spent years on this project with uh, the city and we just weren't able to get to the red tape. It's quite frustrating because the reason we did this was because we wanted to give back. After spending 1.3 million on the land and consulting fees, Moore says he's now applying to build four market rental units under existing zoning. If you can't work with developers to be able to build these buildings, they're never going to get built. This area is always going to stay this way until the people that we have in place to create policies actually allow housing to be built. We wanted to ask Vancouver's mayor if his ABC majority council will re-examine 6040 zoning in the DEOD, but his office did not respond to our interview request. Councillor Peter Meisner then agreed to do an interview and got the green light, but his clearance to speak was later rescinded by the mayor's office, Kristen Robinson, Global News. A Surrey family is warning pet owners tonight after their dog almost died from an accidental drug overdose. As Janet Brown reports, a routine bathroom break before bed turned into a terrifying rush to save his life. Come on, bud. Oh, boy. Eight-year-old chocolate lab Charlie loves his walks. But earlier this month, after his regular nighttime walk before bed through his South Surrey neighborhood, he became non-responsive. I lifted his head and his head just flopped down pretty lifeless. Um, lifted his paws, same thing. There you go, bud. He was rushed to a nearby vet. 
we were pretty panicked carrying Charlie out down to the car. Our kids were crying their eyes out and screaming and it was scary. I mean, he was on the brink of death. You can see the shaved areas here where they put his two IVs. The vet stabilized Charlie, then called an emergency animal hospital in Langley. And staff there suggested the clinic try using naloxone. And it took two doses. Five minutes later, he stood up. The doctor in Langley effectively confirmed opioids at that point, um, which was a shock to us. I mean, this is just what he was doing, you know, looking for a spot and just sniffing around. The animal hospital confirmed Charlie had most likely suffered from a fentanyl overdose. This unfortunately has come up many times before. Drug poisonings in dogs um, are something that we have seen for many years. What happened to Charlie, his owner says, could happen in any neighborhood. Nice. Good boy. boy. Good boy, Charlie. Good boy. To believe that it's not happening in your own backyard is both ignorant and naive, and I think that doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't help anything. What he says does help? Hey, buddy. I think it's more important to know what you're looking for, what you're looking at, uh, know the signs, be prepared, have a naloxone kit at home. <laughs> Charlie is back to normal now, enjoying his walks again, with his owner careful of what he's getting into along the way. Janet Brown, Global News. Still ahead, a trip back in time. This whole neighborhood was built within you know, three or four years of each other. The bike riding photographer capturing a new perspective of Vancouver's past. And coming up in sports, the Canucks make a trade. Who's out and who's in later? All right, time to check in with Christy. Uh, Christy, Aurora Borealis are special enough but when Steve comes along, <laughs> that's right. Whole other Steve show. showed up last night. Yeah, so the Aurora Borealis was pictured all across the province yesterday, even the lower mainland. This shot from Pitt Meadows, for example. But when you get the Aurora Borealis as far south as what we had last night, every once in a while you can get this. This is sort of a ribbon-like thing uh, that you can see. And then on the right, it's a picket fence. This is called Steve. It's created differently than the Aurora. It's actually a strong thermal emission velocity enhancement. Uh, so it's different from just charged particles uh, igniting the molecules in the air which is Aurora. So neat to see that. Thank you so much. We had a few people email us uh, some photos of Steve. Now, first snow of the season in big white today. Yeah, big flakes falling. It didn't last too long, but it still has the potential of snowing on the connector. So heads up if you're traveling there, two to four centimeters of snow late tonight. We certainly have that possibility. Meanwhile, we're going to see the skies clear tomorrow. So although we'll still see some rainfall tonight, it is expected to shift out through the morning hours. So sunshine by the afternoon for most of the interior and we'll start to see sunshine here across the south coast by the morning hours so 17 to 21 degrees and we've got three days of sunshine on the way it's too bad we couldn't string together more than just one day of rainfall but as we head to the weekend there is a chance as you can see saturday and sunday here's tonight's central windows weather window which comes to you from vancouver this is looking out towards the north from spanish bank banks isaac capturing the aurora there Beautiful shots all around. Thanks, Christy. All right, Squire's here now. What have you got coming up, Squire? Well, it was a necessary money-saving move. The Canucks have traded forward Tanner Pearson to Montreal. Chris one towards the front here. Pearson turning, he scores! Now, moving Pearson helps the salary cap situation, and the return from the Habs helps Vancouver's backup goaltending situation. Good to hear that. Also tonight... 
An architectural escapade modernizing Vancouver scenes from a century ago. Tanner Pearson's time with the Canucks wasn't easy and now he gets to start again. Well, certainly last season with all those problems with his hand, but the Canucks have traded Tanner Pearson to Montreal and that has allowed two things to happen, both of them good. They basically got themselves out from under the salary cap issues they start the season under the cap and they also brought in a veteran to possibly be a backup goalie for Thatcher Demko. Pearson and a third round draft pick were sent to the Canadians for goaltender Casey DeSmith who is yet another former Pittsburgh Penguin. He has one year left in his deal but he has played 134 NHL games. Because of his NHL experience Casey DeSmith does seem like the perfect backup for Vancouver this season and him being here allows Arthur Silovs to get more time in the American Hockey League rather than sitting on the bench in Vancouver watching Thatcher Demko. He's going to learn more by playing with Abbotsford. And DeSmith's 9-1-1 save percentage over the last five NHL seasons is actually exactly the same as Thatcher Demko's. And maybe he can team up with another new Canuck and former Penguin Teddy Bluger and do this play again. Look at this. It's Bluger and it's a goal! That'd be fun to watch. Okay, the Labor Cup, which of course is being held at Rogers Arena this weekend, might be named after Australian tennis legend Rod Laver, but it was actually conceived by another tennis legend, Roger Federer, who is in town for this year's edition. It's fitting that a world-class city like Vancouver in beautiful British Columbia is hosting the sixth edition of the Labor Cup. City of Vancouver began thinking about bringing the planet's top players in the Labour Cup to town back in 2018. And it's also fitting that one of the greatest to ever step on a tennis court is responsible for creating this event. True or false, this idea of having like a Ryder Cup tennis event was hatched in the back of a cab by Junior agent. Yes, in Shanghai, on our long drives between uh, the hotel and the club, which was about an hour 15 one way. So we had a lot of time to talk and... Uh, and I guess one time we started discussing how I think it would be great to have, you know, the best players uh, get together and uh, also have a place um, where the former greats can reunite and also have a sort of a role, you know, to play in. Because I feel like in tennis we sometimes don't have enough of it. And then uh, the concept uh, got, got put together, I guess, in the, in the back of a car, yeah. Has this vision turned out to how you imagined it when you had the discussion? way better you know I mean you don't know if you're ever going to get it off the ground uh, you need support you got to take a leap of faith as well to say like okay let's just go for it let's see what happens people are going to criticize it uh, anyways you know uh, but for the most part people actually were super uh, receptive and like very open and very happy that something new was coming to tennis and also with my backing I think people were excited that I actually cared for the game and gave something back to the game so I mean now looking back at the, all the last editions I mean they all been sold out they've all been so much fun um, great matches the players ha had the best time and that's what's been for me really important as well is that the you know the players go away with loads of information in their backpacks and they can apply it you know in their day-to-day -day practice day-to-day -day life in, on a tennis court and actually think back at the labor cup that they learned something from the likes of john mackner or bjorn borg or speaking to you know me to rafa or me or novak or um labor or someone you know i think it's uh, fantastic so and then we want to leave the fans going home with a great experience you know just having 
feel like they've had the best weekend. So we hope uh, we hope we can do that here in Vancouver too. Can you see this being your lasting legacy? Would you like it to be? Um, well, this was more of a lasting legacy for Rod Labour and uh, and the greats that uh, that came before me. It's to thank them for everything they've done for our generation of players, you know, because they got a pat on the back uh, when they played and said, thanks for coming, here's a trophy and there's a voucher in the clubhouse, you know, for you to spend. And that's it. And we're getting big uh, million dollar checks nowadays when we win. And for me, it was something to give back this way. I mean... Yes, I feel like there is a part of a legacy for me here. And maybe one day also I'll be the captain as well of, of, of the team. There's no plans as of now, but uh, I think that could be quite nice. And then, you know, I, I like being in the tennis sphere, to be honest. So maybe there's also other things in the future that are going to happen. But uh, for the moment, I mean, the Labour Cup is definitely a big, big priority for me. OK, so John McEnroe and Bjorn Borg, the two captains, had one of tennis's great rivalries, and they are great friends as well. They'll coach the two teams at the Labor Cup, Europe and the World. They were both on our morning show today, and Mark, being a longtime tennis fan, asked them about another legend who was in his prime when they were in their prime, Jimmy Connors. Every Wimbledon U.S. Open from the mid-70s through the early 80s, you guys were in most, if not all of them. The third guy in the three, the trio there, Jimmy Connors. Never heard of him. We do have a roof now, as if he can have <laughs> <other questions>. Just <laughs> your, your rivalry, we talk about your rivalry, the rivalry with Connors, different, more intense. I'll give you two, I'm going to take 10 seconds away from you. Jimmy Connors was our Rafael Nadal. Yeah. Mm. Never have I ever seen a player except Nadal try as hard, point in, point out. So both right. of us, even though we think he's a complete a-hole, <laughs> have incredible respect for him. Right. I have the utmost of respect for Jimmy Connors and what he brought to the table in tennis. Um, and I, yeah. Bjorn, do no, you No, he did. I agree with you. I mean, so we do have yes, a lot of respect, of but, you know, he's not going to be coming to dinner when <laughs> Team World wins <laughs> the Labor Cup. <laughs> which is right behind us. <laughs> I like that he worked in a never have I ever reference. <laughs> so, I like how he worked in the A part. The A part, yeah. Mm -hmm. So entertaining. Awesome. Thanks very much, Squire. Up next, Vancouver now and then. The photographer capturing history one shot at a time. This is BC is brought to you by Johnston Meyer Insurance Agencies Group. 50 years of trust in your community. Jordan Armstrong is here now with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11. Jordan? Chris, tough to imagine the building of a sidewalk outside an elementary school generating any sort of controversy. But in West Vancouver, that's exactly what's happened. So much controversy from area residents. The district has voted to scrap the sidewalk, which was meant to replace a busy gravel shoulder outside Irwin Park Elementary. At 11 tonight, you'll hear the reasons for the backlash. You'll also hear from a parent who says the district is out of its mind and has an obligation to make that area safer for kids. Chris? What a story. Okay, thanks, Jordan. Well, I'm sure you've heard the saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Well, the Vancouver photographer's work is evidence of that. That's right. John Bentley has a keen eye for showcasing the city's past by framing it in the present. Jay Durant shows us how he does it in This is BC. On the hunt for some more history. This whole neighborhood was built within, you know, three or four years of each other. Searching the city for the contrast between Vancouver now and then. 
Gastown's warehouse studio. It's the uh, oldest brick building in Vancouver. It was built in 1886. Off we go. John Bentley's architectural odyssey is a trip through time. I am amazed at how many old buildings are still here that haven't been torn down and replaced. Most of the buildings in Gastown are relatively unchanged. Buses in the way. Trying to replicate old photographs from the city archives. Try to line it up with exactly the same vantage point that the original photograph was taken. Sometimes there's a building right here and the, you know, the other one's behind it or there's a giant tree in the way. Stanley Park Pavilion used to be a little concession stand. It's almost identical, unchanged from what it was like over 100 years ago. This used to be the Klondike Hotel. This picture's from about 1911, 1912. Try to remember what it was like way back when and how things have changed and how some things haven't changed. Bentley's website, Vancouver Now and Then, has been a huge hit. I get responses from people all over the world. They're getting a little more challenging. Yeah, I've shot all the easy ones. But John's always searching for a new series. Another shot is often just around the next corner. I just think it's kind of neat that some of these things still stand and people just walk by them without knowing anything about their history. Jay Durant, Global News. Very cool. Well, if you know someone who has a great story you want to share with the rest of us, just email your ideas to Jay. This is BC at globalnews.ca. This building looks the same, too. It does. Yeah. <laughs> Almost unchanged on the outside. <laughs> All right. Uh, final word on the weather, Christy. Yeah, so one day of rainfall, and we saw up to 10 millimeters today, which is good, but back to sunshine tomorrow. We need more of it, though. Rain, that is. Yeah, that's right. Oh, you're timing it on the weekend, though. Ah. All right, thanks for watching, everybody. Have a good night. Good night, all. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.